This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey on inflation and interest rate hikes. What we're really saying is, look, it's going to have to remain restrictive to have this effect of bringing inflation down, and particularly next year. Jim Zelter, co-president at Apollo Global Management, says, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to get tougher out there. Certainly the higher cost of capital and tougher financial conditions are what we would expect as a base case. Energy company BP on the future. We think there are going to be a shortage of uh, green electricity in the 2030s, and our belief is that we can develop and build and operate these wind farms providing that green electricity. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. Of course, Ed, that surprise credit downgrade by Fitch this week got a huge amount of attention. Yeah, Denise, with Fitch downgrading the U.S. government's long-term debt rating a notch from AAA to AA plus, and then citing the debt ceiling drama and also concern about the U.S. government's finances, given tax cuts, new spending initiatives, and possible economic shocks. Yeah, there was a lot for markets to absorb, as you point out, Ed. And we had a chance to ask Jim Zelter. He's co-president at Apollo Global Management about it. And Apollo also reporting quarterly results. And Zelter tells Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz the situation could mean opportunity for Apollo. We start here with Jonathan. Check this out. Just going through a record profit over at Apollo Global Management, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Just allow me to get your views, Jim, on what took place in the last couple of days in this bond market and the U.S. downgrade. Jim, how did you and the team respond to that? You know, certainly, um, you know, from a from a macro perspective, I don't think there's anything new in this message of uh, warnings of our fiscal uh, situation in terms of the long term. But, you know, for us, I think the bigger picture is all of the, the news. Uh, what's really happening is there's a higher cost of capital around the globe. Um, as the market gets more comfortable with a higher rate environment, uh, obviously inflation has been stubbornly high, but there's, a, there's going to be a higher cost of capital. And whether it's re- financing rates or the high yield wall of maturities in a couple years, um, companies are going to be confronted with a higher cost of capital. And so how that, you know, um, impacts the economy, the transmission mechanisms, um, but it's still a very interesting environment to put capital to work uh, if you have the right type of capital. Jim, do you buy this idea that we were hearing from Tom Tsouris that when we get that maturity wall in two years' time, if rates aren't materially lower, if, say, they get down to 4 percent, you could see a real shakeout, unlike what we are prepared for or that anyone is calling for? No, I, I think it's, 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 I don't want to say it's the likely outcome, but we, we would say when we think about the outcomes of the next 24 months, um, it's our view that financial conditions are indeed tightening. It takes a while for the impact of rates based on our economy being so services and consumer driven for that to really uh, filter through, if you will, and have a broader impact. Um, but certainly I, I would say when we look at our purview from our perch uh, and the business that we've grown, um, you know, financial conditions will and are getting more challenging. They're getting more challenging in, in, in England and in parts of Europe. They're going to get more challenging in certain industries in the U.S. And that is how we think about the world.
world in 24 and 25. Along with the evolution uh, of how capital gets provided, certainly the higher cost of capital and tougher financial conditions are what we would expect as a base case. But going back to our business, I mean, I was last on in April. The world's changed dramatically since the middle of April in terms of what concerns were about the banking crisis and liquidity. Um, and now it's really more of a business issue. But our, our, our companies had a, a resilient and tremendous record quarter. Um, we've really positioned our business to do well in a period of higher rates. There was some skepticism a couple years ago. But certainly, this is a, 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 a potentially a golden time for private credit. And uh, between private credit and our alternative asset business, as well as retirement services. We are, are very uh, excited about the success and resilience of our platform. Jim, one thing that in the private credit world has been happening on the heels of some of those banking failures has been a shift into consumer credit increasingly, consumer loans that are not being provided by an increasing number of institutions. Are you doing that as well, funding some of the you know, less prime uh, auto loans and things of that nature? You know, it's a, it's a small part of a business. We, we have 16 platforms and, and 4,000 people out there every day uh, providing capital to companies. And, and uh, for the most part, we're really more of a corporate and industrial lender. We have small parts of our business that are in the uh, mortgage space, the, the residential mortgage space and the home improvement space. But that's a small portion of our business. Um, and I think one has to be appropriately cautious as you're uh, engaging in the environment that I described where, you know, consumer pressures are probably on the rise over the next 6 to 12 months. So the answer to your question is we have small exposure. Um, it's one where we are making sure we're top of the capital structure with the highest uh, rated counterparties. Uh, you saw some other firms have large concerns about their consumer business. Uh, and we have to, I think you have to tread very carefully uh, in this in this transition of of tighter financial conditions when you talk about the consumer in the U.S. or the U.K. Jim, I want to talk about a deal you have done, a deal you've brokered, Carvana. What was attractive about that to you and the team? Just walk us through how that came together. Well, Jonathan, we, we, we've been an investor for uh, for several years, and certainly we think there's a lot of great attributes to the business model and, and the, uh, you know, what, what they're trying to pull together in terms of it's a very large market. It's a very, it's not a concentrated market. It's very dispersed. Um, and as we got more involved with it, certainly that company as they grew, they did take advantage of the low cost of capital provided by the high yield and bond market the last couple of years. Certainly in the last 12 months, as the world has changed and the cost of capital and the impact of that on their balance sheet and their and their financial condition, they realized that they would be better off pursuing their long-term growth by having a less levered balance sheet and more equity in the balance sheet. So we worked in a very consensual manner with management, with other bondholders, and arrived at a situation where it's a win-win. Uh, the company gets to continue to execute its business plan in a, in a less levered structure. Uh, bondholders get paid down. Equity gets raised. Uh, and I think you're going to see, I, I think that's a precursor for what you're going to see on companies that have healthy uh, upward trajectory uh, opportunities um, that, you know, there, there is capital for companies to delever and equitize their balance sheets. There's certainly a lot of, of tech or software businesses that have great inherent growth, but that's really, in our in our view, you know, that was a playbook for how to appropriately and constructively uh, delever a balance sheet of a of a company that has an upward trajectory. Jim Zelter, co-president at Apollo Global Management, with Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow. 
and Lisa Abramowitz. All right, here's another perspective, Ed, alongside Zelters. Compliments of John Stoltzfus. He's Chief Investment Strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. And Denise, he's pretty bullish about stocks and about the S&P 500. So check this out. Price target, 4900 yes, on the S&P. I want to give you some credit first, because the original 4400 price target was done year-end last year, right? Yes, sir. Looking out. So December you were bullish. 12th, in fact. You were bullish and you were right to be. Now you're even more bullish. Yeah. Tell me why you're even more bullish now. Uh, well, it looks like things are coming together. And uh, it, period of transition, no doubt about it, fear of toxic brews and things like that <laughs> uh, 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 when you have changes. But the overall thematic is that, that we would say it, it it's an end to free money, and it's a good thing. Uh, we have been during a period, as a result of the pandemic, we had reached a period of free money, both on the largesse of two administrations in terms of providing uh, uh, liquidity, and then the Federal Reserve as well, the Fed, Fed falling behind the curve and all that. Uh, but the good news is the economy is showing remarkable strength if we look at the GDP Okay, uh, based on all that's happening, corporates are, are navigating through a, a, a transitional period remarkably well with quite a, quite a few sectors still showing good growth. Uh, and then on top of it, the consumer and uh, 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 jobs are remaining remarkably resilient. So with the resilience that we see and this transition, and when we say it's a good thing, free money uh, is not a good thing. If money is uh, costs enough so that corporations have to pay for the privilege of borrowing money and and bond buyers get something back cd buyers get something back this is a healthy environment it's bad for memes it's bad for it's bad for cryptocurrencies we would think ultimately uh, we also think it, uh, it it's bad for highly leveraged players and they will bemoan what's going on does your bull case lose some of its luster if the idea that inflation might stay around 3% and the fed might tolerate that does that change your bull case? No, it doesn't. In, in fact, three percent inflation would be when we when we think the target of two percent. Uh, we when we often wonder, well, why does the Fed really want to go back to that? We can remember when economists just a few years ago were again bemoaning seems to be an operative word of the day. It was they were they were bemoaning uh, the fact that growth was at two percent, inflation was at, at less than two percent, and they said uh, an economy the size of the U.S. needs three to four percent. Be careful what you wish for to to grow. So we'd have to say three. We four. We don't. We don't want to look at four. But we can remember during the Greenspan era when the target was four, and we said, "Gosh, if we if we could get four percent inflation down to four, we'll go. We'll sign up for life." <laughs> you know, it, everything is relative. It's 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 the it, what we hope we can bring. You know, the, the old timers in this market is a sense of context to all of this, and in that sense, that's what keeps us bullish at this point. And that was John Stoltzfus, chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management with our Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. And coming up... We'll hear from the heads of energy company BP and also the London Stock Exchange Group. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, oil, energy, and pollution, another big topic this past week. 
Yeah, and we also had earnings and from BP. And here's BP CEO Bernard Looney with Bloomberg's Mark Cudmore and Danny Berger about all of that. Are you still on track to give back $4 billion worth of buybacks this year? Look, I think it's been another good quarter for uh, for the company. Um, we grew our oil and gas production by 3% while we drove costs down by 9% in that business. Uh, we brought on two new projects, one in the United States, one in India, uh, about 90,000 barrels a day. And we grew in our transition growth engines, as we said we would, 10% growth in uh, biofuels. We almost tripled the amount of power we're selling in our EV charging network, um, and we increased our renewables and uh, our hydrogen pipeline. So it's been a good quarter, and it's that performance and that outlook that has given the board uh, the confidence to announce the $1.5 billion uh, buyback, and as you said, importantly, also increase the dividend by 10%. And that dividend increase of 10% is uh, in part due to the fact that we've reduced our share count by 9% over the last uh, four quarters. So we can essentially keep the dividend amount the same while increasing the dividend per share. So this has been a good quarter. Uh, the company's uh, running well and uh, and we're very pleased. When it comes to the execution of your traders, you point out another exceptional quarter for gas trading, though softer than the first quarter. How much softer? What was the difference between these two quarters for your trading units? Yeah, the the, the trading organization in uh, in gas in particular had a had a very good quarter, an exceptional quarter, as we uh, called it. A little bit uh, less than the first quarter, but still uh, exceptional, as we say. And uh, it's really just a characterization of a slightly lower volatility in the in the markets in the second quarter than there was in the first quarter. You you got some criticism recently for winning a German offshore bid that you might have overpaid um, for bidding for these low carbon projects. And I'm curious about what kind of returns you expect in that project. And are you worried about diluting your returns by bidding such high prices for low carbon projects? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, we're First of all, we're absolutely delighted uh, with that win. Um, it's exactly um, aligned with the strategy of the company, um, 100%. Uh, we said that we will get 6 to 8% unlevered returns uh, from the renewables part of the business, which is one part of our five transition growth engines. We fully expect to get uh, 68% uh, from uh, this win in Germany. I think just a couple of points I'd uh, I'd make is um, what's a little bit different maybe to other companies is we have a huge demand for green electricity in the 2030s from our own businesses in uh, Germany, from our own refineries and our decarbonization plans there. We're building out, I think now, the second largest uh, fast charging network in Germany. So we need green electricity for our charging business. We need it for our biofuels projects that we're building there. And we need it for our trading business. So we think we'll need five to 10 gigawatts. We think they're going to be a shortage of uh, green electricity in the 2030s. And our belief is that we can develop and build and operate uh, these wind farms, providing that uh, green electricity, those green electrons, cheaper than we can do by procuring it on the marketplace. We don't uh, need to necessarily own the assets. We want access to the electrons. We'll bring in partners. We'll farm it down over time. Uh, But we're absolutely delighted with this. It's consistent with strategy, and it's a great win for BP and for our shareholders. And that was BP CEO Bernard Looney with Bloomberg's Mark Cudmore and Danny Berger. And another story, Denise, getting a lot of attention is what's happening with London Stock Exchange Group. And Ed, Denny and Mark, they caught up with CEO David Schwimmer of LSAG, as they like to call it, about that one as well, including some problem spots right now. Let's listen in. So you're getting towards the upper end, towards 8% for the full year revenue. What's getting you there? What's driving that? Well, we've just had another 
strong set of results from LSEG and top line growth just under 8% for the first half. And it's been really broad-based growth. Our data and analytics business, 7.6% revenue growth. Our post-trade business, over 19% revenue growth. So very pleased with how the business is performing. We are also seeing the continuing transformation of LSEG. It's very much on track. We're seeing a number of our businesses growing faster than they have in years. The partnership with Microsoft is going very well. So we just have a lot of confidence going into the second half. We see great momentum in the business and feel very comfortable with the the upper end of that guidance range. Broad-based growth, it's good numbers, good operating profit out there, but it did miss analyst estimates. And can you, can you break down there what analysts got wrong, why they were kind of overestimating or expecting even more from these numbers? I think uh, top-line growth, we have uh, probably beaten estimates a bit. In terms of uh, EPS, that might be a little bit off, but that's largely given uh, the higher tax rate. Uh, so overall, the business is performing extremely well. Uh, and our strategy is working. This is a business that is very well positioned for the era that we are in now, which is a, an era of technological-driven uh, change. So lots of things going right in this business, and uh, we're feeling very good about it. Yeah, and, and, and look, you know, we can see a lot, of, a lot of this coming through from data and, and analytics, in subscriptions. But, David, when it comes to the IPO market, when do you expect it to come back? Obviously, we've seen a, a pretty subdued IPO market around the world. And given what's been going on with uh, war in Europe, with concerns about recession, with uncertainty about interest rates, frankly, that's not very surprising. We are seeing a healthy pipeline building up. The IPO market, it closes, it opens. You know, it's been cyclical pretty much forever. So I expect to see it opening up. Hard to tell exactly when, but it, we're starting to see some green shoots now. We've seen some successful offerings already a little more recently. So we'll see what happens in the second half and uh, optimistic about it coming back uh, strong and healthy. A lot of your group's earnings come from clearing interest rate swaps. Now, is there a risk that that clearing moves to the U US when the EU stops recognizing um, London Clearinghouse's London operations? I don't think uh, we're at that point anymore. Here we are, you know, 2023. This has been an ongoing discussion for a number of years. I think we're well past the point where there is a risk of uh, LCH Limited being shut down in terms of its access to Europe. I think the various stakeholders in the EU recognize how important LCH is to their institutions, to their uh, banks, uh, asset owners, etc. So there may be uh, some kind of requirement for entities in the EU to have, access, have an active account in an EU clearinghouse, but I don't think it's a likelihood that uh, you'll see a shutting down of access to LCH. And as you can see, the business continues to perform extremely well. As I mentioned, over 19% growth in our post-trade business. A good amount of that was driven by the strong performance of SwapClear. We're continuing to see uh, strong volumes there as the markets are reacting to the interest rate environment mm. and some of the surprises, some of the uncertainty. So uh, that business continues to perform very, very well. Yeah, look, look, we do feel like we're, we're at a precipice, David, of, of, of changing regulation. And, and certainly one of that, to bring it back to UK listings, seems around there. Now, pensions have pushed back on changes that would make it easier to list with concerns about shareholder protection. Do you think those concerns are warranted when it comes to listing rule changes? I'm actually feeling very 
positive, I, I'll say bullish about the environment uh, in this market. There are a lot of changes moving in the right direction. Uh, you hear some comments uh, questioning some of them, but I think overall the momentum is, is very much moving in the right direction. We're simplifying some of the listing requirements. The disclosure requirements are going to be simplified, made more competitive. We're introducing this intermittent trading venue, which is generating a lot of excitement both here in the UK, but also from uh, privately held companies in the US. I think the discussion around uh, pension funds and consolidation of pension funds and pension fund allocation uh, more to uh, private equity, venture, uh, UK equities, all very healthy. It'll take a little bit of time on the pension funds uh, for that to have a significant impact, but all of these areas are moving in the right direction. So I, I actually feel, as I said, pretty positive about uh, both the momentum, but the direction of travel for this market. And that was London Stock Exchange Group CEO David Schwimmer with Bloomberg's Danny Berger and Mark Cudmore. And coming up at Uber CEO on what next for artificial intelligence in the rideshare industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130 to Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Well, at the rideshare business, it's really getting more interesting and more complicated when you think about with the explosion of generative AI and other technology they might use. And speaking of rideshare results, Uber's results this past quarter were mixed. And we had a chance to catch up with Dara Kasrashahi, CEO at Uber, about prospects for AI and also all about the company's results. So now let's listen to Bloomberg's Ed Ledlow and Emily Chang with Kasrashahi. Check this out. It's a seminal moment for Uber to deliver gap operating profits, free cash flow of over a billion dollars just in the quarter along with a really strong, strong top line. You look at a gross bookings growth, it was 30, $33.6 billion, up 18% on a constant currency basis. So I think the results, both in terms of the top line and the bottom line, have been second to none and certainly leading in our industry. Uh, and it has taken a lot of cost discipline in terms of really looking at making that perfect match between a rider and a driver or an eater and a courier and a restaurant and making sure everything uh, in that transaction happens perfectly, no errors, no mistakes, no cancellations, et cetera. And at the same time, uh, it takes a lot of cost discipline in terms of overheads, uh, our headcount has been flat. And if you look at our headcount compared to 2019, pre-pandemic, our total headcount is up 10% during those years. And our gross bookings in the core business has been up 80% versus headcount growth of 10%. So uh, it absolutely has taken that discipline. But at the same time, the company continues to innovate and gain category position, which is what it's all about. Now, you formally announced that CFO Nelson Chai will be leaving the company, which Bloomberg reported a few weeks ago. What is the interim plan and, and what are you looking for? Nelson is going to be staying with us really through the balance of the year to make sure that 
We have a smooth succession plan. The next CFO is in seat and can be coached by Nelson as well. And really what I'm looking for is another partner like Nelson. You know, Nelson came in at a very difficult time and teamed up with myself and the rest of the team taking us through an environment of deep operating losses, taking us through the IPO, getting us a really strong balance sheet so that we could come out of the IPO and could deal with issues like the pandemic to where we are now, which is a leading company. The next five years of our journey are about scaling and becoming that true global platform that can grow top line in a 20% range, can continue to innovate, and continue to drive the kinds of margins and the incremental margin growth that we've been driving historically. We told investors that incremental margins as a percentage of gross bookings growth will be seven plus percent. And consistently we've come in above that because we've been innovating, but at the same time been disciplined at the bottom line. I'm looking for a partner who can deliver kind of the next chapter of our growth, just like Nelson did, Uber 2.0, so to speak. You know, Dara, I look at the quarter gone, number of trips, gross bookings, active drivers, demand and supply side, all at records, strong gross booking forecasts. Why wasn't that enough to kind of raise expectations for adjusted EBITDA next year? You'd said in February, I believe, it'd be around 5 billion. We guided for Q3 adjusted EBITDA well above street estimates. We got it for 975 million to a billion 25, which was a substantial increase versus expectations out there. And consistently, if you look at our track record, we've put out targets, we've consistently beaten those targets, you know, by anywhere five, 10 plus percent. And we intend to beat that $5 billion target just as we've beaten every single target that we put in front of our investors. So we think continued discipline uh, execution, strong top line growth, increased margins, and more of the same along with innovation is going to get us well beyond the $5 billion. M's been all around San Francisco in a cruise. I've been all around San Francisco in a Waymo. And I appreciate for our audience around the world, jumping in a robo taxi with no driver is not yet a reality. But for lots of people that I asked on Fred's Twitter, LinkedIn, that's their question for you, Dara. When is Uber going to take that fleet of autonomous vehicles as more of a priority? Well, we are very uh, bullish on autonomous. It's taking time. We have to make sure that the technology is safe. And we're partnering amongst all of the significant verticals that we have. Not only are we global, not only are we the largest platform with the biggest audience, 137 million consumers coming to us every single month, but we operate in every significant vertical for autonomous passenger vehicles with Uber, delivery food and grocery delivery with Eats, and then freight as well. Autonomous trucks are absolutely going to be a big part of our future. And if you look at each one of those verticals, we're partnering with leading companies. Waymo, for example, in passenger vehicles, Neuro and and Serve, amongst others, in delivery. And then in trucking, of course, Aurora, with which we have a strategic investment as well. So we absolutely believe that autonomous is going to be a part of, our, of the future. And we are working to uh, expose our leading marketplace to autonomous technology as it develops in a safe, efficient manner. Well, speaking of another kind of technology, artificial intelligence, Instacart's now out with a chatbot, DoorDash as well. Is there an Uber bot in the works? 
Uh, there's definitely going to be an Uberbot in, in the in the works. But but I tell you that we have been working with machine learnings, artificial intelligence uh, systems, deep learning systems for years and years and years. Every time you get matched up with a car or get matched up with a courier, uh, there are ML algorithms that are making that match. The pricing that happens, time and day uh, and distance, all of that is uh, is driven by machine learning algorithms. So that has been going on and those algorithms only get better and the data sets that we work with are the largest data sets globally. Uh, and the more data we have, the smarter we get, the more personal uh, we can get. We are now focused more on productivity applications. So for example, introducing uh, GitHub Copilot for our developers or helping summarize situations for our customer service agents so that they already know context of what's going on with a particular customer and how they can help. Uh, we will absolutely put our AI agents out there to help the consumer. But also, don't forget about the driver. Drivers who are driving on uh, our marketplace, they also want, want help. Where should I go? What ride should I accept, et cetera? So we're also working on AI to power drivers and couriers so that they can make smarter decisions every day to be able to earn flexibly, but to maximize their earnings based on their time. So hang on, just to double down there, is an Uber chatbot something that you're working on right now? Uh, we're working on it right now, absolutely. But it's a very, very small part of the AI ecosystem at Uber. Dara, Uber is as close as anything the US and Europe has to an everything app, something akin to what you might see in Southeast Asia. So I, I'm curious how closely you're paying attention to your crosstown neighbor, Mr. Musk, and what X is doing within everything app? Uh, well, uh, it's difficult to take your eyes off of what Musk is doing or read about uh, what Elon is doing. And, and we do so because we want to learn and, and listen, it's pretty fun. Um, but we are leading in terms of building out a super app. Uh, remember, too, that in Southeast Asia, we have a very significant strategic investment in Grab. Uh, Grab has, uh, has mobility, delivery, payments on their app. Uh, Kareem, uh, which, in which we have a big investment in Middle East, same thing, mobility, delivery, payments, and stuff, uh, payments as well. So we're very, very familiar. Uh, with a super app concept. And in the West, I do think Uber is the closest to achieving that super app. We want to be that operating system for your everyday life. Wherever you're going, whatever you want to get delivered, Uber is going to be there for you. And I think that we are steadily moving along the super uh, app path, which is why we're gaining category position against our competitors, both in mobility and delivery, while delivering margins and being profitable as well. And you've been listening to Dara Kasrashahi, CEO at Uber, with Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow and Emily Chang. And coming up... A look at what next for the UK after this past week's interest rate hike there. And we'll hear from Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England, with our Francine Lacroix. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. 
I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, of course, the Fed isn't the only central bank raising interest rates. Yeah, it sure isn't. And talking about that, the Bank of England this week, well, it hiked rates just like the Fed did the week before. And Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix caught up with Andrew Bailey, governor of the Bank of England, to ask him about the UK economy and what we should watch going forward. Let's listen in. What we're really saying is, look, it's going to have to remain restrictive to have this effect of bringing inflation down, and particularly next year. A lot of this year, we're going to see inflation come down rapidly, but that's a lot of that is the unwinding of things that happened last year, energy and so on. It's 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 the last mile, if you like. I use the sort of term sort of a bit loosely. It's the last mile, which obviously where policy is really doing the work, and we're going to have to see policy stay restrictive. Now, the question then is for how long? Right, that's the question. Now, I'm afraid the answer is because we don't know at the moment. That's why we say for sufficiently long to have its effect, because it's too soon to judge really how long that's going to take. I'm much more confident now that it's on the downslope. Mm-hmm. But of course, people want to see that. They want to really believe it. They want to build, and then it right. gets built into people's expectations. It gets built into price setting. It gets yeah. built into wage setting. We've got to see that happen. Could you could you say actually you're victorious right now? No, I'm not going to say victorious. That's, that's, that would be, I think, you know, far too soon to say that. What I see is, is much more solid evidence that it's coming down. We've been, in a way, we've been, you know, the number we had a couple of weeks ago, we've been waiting for this number for some time because there are, all, there are a number of puzzles to us in the, in, in the inflation numbers which just didn't seem to really reconcile with what we were hearing. And this gave us more confidence that we're seeing it. But why put that wording in the guidance? What are you worrying about? Well, I think what we're saying to people, that, that, you know, there's a path in the market where rates go up and then they come down. Yeah. Well, what happens if you keep rates essentially where they are today? Now, it's interesting, both of them return inflation to target, and there's no doubt some other paths we could draw on a piece of paper to get the same effect. What we wanted to say is, look, before we get to the point when we can really say with confidence, you know, this is, go- this is getting behind us, we can start to, you know, to, to, to maybe bring rates down, We've got to see a lot more evidence. So they will have to stay, you know, policy will have to stay restrictive for a sufficient period of time to get to that point. But is this a new normal in terms of interest rates? Will we ever go back to what we had in the last 10 years? Well, I would be surprised if we go back to near zero interest rates. I think something's going to have to happen that um, yeah, we currently don't know about. I think if you do all the work that's done on sort of equilibrium rates, where might the rates settle, that would suggest it's lower than it is today as a sustainable rate. But actually, nowhere near you know, down to where we were in the sort of the, the period post the financial crisis. But that's uncertain, and we're not yet there to the point when we can start reaching, I think, firm views on that. Governor, yeah. is the guidance preparing the, the way for a pause in interest rates? We're not there uh, yet, I would say. Um, but we're going to have to see the evidence as it emerges for, for the next meeting. So it's not, it's not designed to do that, but it is designed to say we're really seeing the effects now of policy working. Yeah, we're going to have to go on seeing those effects. We think there is a you know, the clear downward path of inflation happening. Those things need to come back. But, so by September 21st, I think we'll have two new CPIs yes, and, will, and a yeah. couple of government reports. What are you expecting those to show? We do expect to see a drop in inflation because one of the two remaining annual energy base effects from the government's energy policies comes out. The July number released in August is the first one. The October number released in November, which we think is going to be a somewhat bigger one, actually, will come out. And those two things are pretty firmly baked in. So we, we do expect to see that happen. What we see beyond that, well, yeah, we'll wait and uh, 
Wait, wait for us. But Governor, what would you what would give you comfort to actually say that you've you've done the right decision so far? Services prices and infla- services inflation because it has a domestic labour content in it, particularly the labour market, where we are seeing signs of loosening of the labour market, and then pay where it is still at a level, I'm afraid, which is not consistent with the inflation target. And that was Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England, with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. This is Bloomberg. Now stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. <laughs> 